This is Equip and Engage, a podcast by Subsplash, exploring how ministry, technology, and innovation come together to equip churches around the world to engage their communities. Welcome to Equip and Engage. I am John Crabtree, ministry consultant here at Subsplash, which means I have the privilege to talk to thousands of churches a year about what we do for them technology-wise. But I also want to introduce our guest today, this is Dr. Esau McCauley. Dr. Dr. McCauley, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, uh, your ministry? Sure. Um, I'm an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, the Wheaton in Illinois. I am married to a pediatrician who's also a Navy reservist. She's currently um, been called up to active duty, so she's serving our country um, right now away from family so we're dealing with that we have four kids um and one middle schooler two elementary schoolers and a kid who's in preschool uh let me see what else i'm an anglican priest i am a writer with um articles that appear in christianity today washington post this summer i began um working as a contributing um writer for the new york times which means i usually have an article there once a month um, I think that's about it that I could think of. Awesome. Well, thank you for your wife's service and the sacrifice uh, that you uh, as her husband are, are also making. So, yes, we talk about it, how it's not just the spouse who serves, it's the whole family. And so we're all dealing with mom being away, but she'll be home eventually. God willing. Great. Well, we're excited to have you on the podcast today, Dr. McCauley, not only because you are a clergy member in the Anglican church in North America, which is one of our partners, but also even more so because you just launched a book that I think uh, has the ability to impact both the American and the global church, uh, the big C church worldwide. And the title is Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. What spurred you to write this book and specifically at this time? Well, it's really interesting. Um, I had a, a kind of normal academic career where, well, actually not normal. I'd gone to seminary and then I took a, a, a time in the um, church and then I went to the academy and I was writing a, a kind of a standard dissertation on Galatians and the inheritance, which is actually out and published. And if you got $100 for a technical monograph, knock yourself out. <laughs> but um, I was finishing that book towards the end of 2016. Um, well, I was coming back to America and it was during the time leading up to the election, similar to where we are now. But there's this real sense of unrest and protest and issues dealing with injustice. And I saw a lot of Christians, especially um, African-American Christians, who had this right instinct that um, there's something about our Christian faith that informs the, our, the church's public witness. And I remember seeing an interview where someone said, well, this is not your mom, your grandparents' civil rights movement. And I said, well, hold on. The civil rights movement was just like, to me, the glory of American Christianity. This time where like who we believed, what we believed about God led black Christians out into the public square to contend for these things that we thought were important. And so I had this idea that I didn't want that form of Christian faith and spirituality to be lost in our day. And so that was the beginning of like what became Reading While Black. Another thing that was happening was I was reading tons of New Testament books and tons of scholarship, but very rarely were the the subject matter of the book 
actually focused on the lived experiences of people in my community. And so I just couldn't find any books that were dealing with issues about how do you think about policing from a Christian perspective. I couldn't find any books that talked about public protest and how can you do that as a Christian. And I felt like in the absence of a Christian voice, any voice would do. And I saw people just grabbing things from the culture and trying to implement them. And I said, well, hold on. What would happen if I were able to ask these questions from um, a Christian a Christian framework. One last thing that I think that is probably important to understand about what went into the writing of this book. I grew up in the African-American church and I got to this place where I really wanted to go to the seminary. And I thought that I would take all of the stuff from the seminary and then take it back to the black church. And one of the things I got, I began to understand really quickly when I got into seminaries and white academic spaces is that actually the, the, the black church had, a, had a, a message that everybody else needed to hear. So rather than thinking I need to take all of the stuff that I learned from the seminary and take it back to the black church, I actually said, well, all of the stuff that I, was, that I learned growing up, I feel like the world needs to hear. And so those kinds of three streams, one is feeling like um, the issues that I cared about weren't being addressed. Two, there was a sense of unrest um, and like a lack of clarity about um, Christianity and justice, and three, a lack of appreciation of the African-American Christian tradition, all were kind of like like roads or paths that I traveled down over the, the years leading up to the writing of the book. And it all led to this thing in the book that you call a fourth thing or a fourth way. Yes. At, at Subsplash, our core values are humility, innovation, and excellence. So everything we do for the glory of the Lord is, is through the lens of that. And I think your writing actually hits those to a T. Uh, first and foremost, you humbly speak about this fourth thing, which I'm going to let you talk about here in a second. Yes. But you you call it Black Ecclesial Theology, and it's yes. method Black Ecclesial Interpretation. Yes. Uh, it, but you accomplish it humbly by recognizing that it has rarely appeared in print. Instead, yes. it has been in the pulpits of yeah. African-American churches or their CD tape ministries and, and sermons. Yes. And so I think the way you innovate is by actually applying this tradition in print yes. and uh, doing it excellently to a variety of pressing cultural issues that affect black Americans today, yeah. black Christians uh, as well. And so can you help listeners better understand and maybe expound upon black ecclesial yeah. interpretation? Well, I think that if, if people actually paid attention to you know, every, every reader wants to, every writer wants to be read. But I think the most important part of the book is me trying to kind of talk about the ways in which the different kind of interpretive communities that exist. And the ones that I laid out is kind of the black, even, I mean, sorry, the white evangelical tradition and the white mainline tradition as being like the kind of two main dominant voices in the academy. So when I came in, I found myself kind of pulled between those two worlds. And there was that particular tradition, the, the mainline um, evangelical divide has its own history, its own kind of core text and its own argument. But actually that doesn't really include many black voices. Um, and then the third group that I talked about was kind of the black progressive tradition that exists in many of the academies. It's a part of the black church. So I don't try to make, I don't try to make the claim that like there are no black progressives. That would be a kind of an insane idea. The black church isn't a monolith. But what I want to say is that there is a, a lot of kind of black progressive thought in print. It's the dominant voice in the academy. And the voice that you don't hear in the academy is what I call kind of the black ecclesial tradition, which is 
um, kind of, I, I talked about rooted in the ethos, the culture, the confession statements, the sermons, the tapes, the videos of the black church. And so I said that that, that tradition for a variety of reasons isn't really in print and it doesn't fit in any of the boxes that we normally like to put up with, you know, in, in the other category. So we say, okay, if you care about social justice, then you definitely don't believe in the Bible. And if you believe in the Bible and you care about, you know, personal salvation, then you definitely can't believe in justice. Or if you are black and you're talking about justice, then it has to be rooted in a larger, more revisionist understanding of Christian theology. And what I wanted to say is, well, there's actually a tradition that exists that's like in ecclesial communities, in churches, that kind of brings those things that other traditions that pulled apart and kept it together by the providence of God. And so the book is saying that like the the kind of black ecclesial theologian often feels himself alien, both at home and not at home in a lot of different communities. So we will say with kind of our evangelical brothers and sisters, yes, the Bible is God's word to us for our good. We will say to, with our white progressive brothers and sisters, yeah, there's a, there's a truth that like fundamentalism has often done real damage to black Christians and the Bible is used to justify slavery. We will say that um, with our black progressive brothers and sisters, that the black voice needs to have its freedom to articulate theology for itself. And I, But then where we kind of will separate and say, yeah, well, we are free to to construct this theology for ourselves, but it's okay if that construction is actually in the center of what Christians have always believed. And just because we accept the critique of the damage done to the Bible by fundamentalism, it doesn't mean we have to reject the Bible itself. And just because we care about personal salvation, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to have to, we can say that things as personal salvation and justice are both important at the same time. And so when I talk about this fourth way, it's like, the black Christian trying to make his way, his or his or her way through the world when there's a lot of different voices and interpretive traditions, they're going to pull you this way and that. One of the things that makes the internet, here's why the internet is confusing. The internet is the collision of stories that are all happening in the same place. And we're putting people into roles for which they don't belong. So if you grew up in a binary between social action is here and personal salvation is here, and a black person comes in and starts talking about social action, and you're going to download onto that black person like all kinds of things they don't actually believe because that's the binary that you're used to. And so what the what what social media did is it just brought everybody together who are often living in different narratives and different and different norms. And so what reading while black tries to do, at least in the first part, is to say. You need to understand the narrative within which people are speaking, which means because I, I can't I cannot count how many times people say, "Well, do you you say this? You mean these five things?" I'm like, "Well, no, I don't need any of those five things." <laughs> and so it's just I think that like it is a hard thing for us to find to ever understand someone else's story. Uh, in the bonus track, you actually speak about. Uh, to kind of put this all together, you speak about the black Christian traditions gift to the American church. Could you just yes. expound on that, that statement, what that gift is? Yes. And this is what we've, I've been trying to get at. So there, there is, and this is what I, this is what I want to say about the different stories. There is what happens is a real divide for a variety of reasons in kind of the white Christian tradition where social, the social gospel goes this way. And in a lot, not all the ecclesial communities, um, it's attached to kind of different understandings of the Christian tradition. And there is a sense in which the authority of scripture in white Christian spaces oftentimes heads down a personal salvation, hesitancy towards social action road. And that's because you can kind of, you have the privilege to make those kinds of distinctions. 
what I want to say is that the black church, and this is why you have to understand this very clearly, the black church comes out of slavery. And we think of slavery as a moral evil, but it wasn't a moral evil, it was in law. And so when the black Christian it comes to faith, you know, during the pre-revolution, pre-Civil War, Civil War area, and they're opposing slavery, they're opposing a law. And so the black Christian then is comes, the black Christian church comes into being where there wasn't the ability to separate like personal salvation in Jesus through Jesus and social action. And so these things emerge together in the black church in a way that doesn't happen in white Christian spaces. And so when people ask, when people have this fear, and this is what, this is what I say to people all of the time, they have this fear. If I care about justice, I'm not going to lose my kind of theological bearings. And then I say, well, we have a tradition, literally, that's like 400 years old, 300 years old, 200 years old, whatever you want to say about the birth of the official African-American church in this country, of people who cared about injustice and who believed the things that Christians always believed. You can go and look them up. Look at the confessional statements of a black Pentecostal denominations, like the Church of God in Christ. Look at the confessional statements of the black Methodist tradition. Look at the confessional statements of the black Baptist tradition. So you can see that these two things can be held together. And so that means that the fear that the American church has, that we're gonna lose our bearing, is not, we have a historical counterexample. And so the gift of the, that the African-American Christian tradition gives to the church is like what the Bible actually joins together, we don't have to pull apart. There's this real tendency, and this might be, forgive me, but it's like the talents, right? We want to say, well, if I can get this little bit, Jesus loves me, and I'm going to hold on to this and like bury it. So then when Jesus comes back, here's this part. Versus saying, because this is the fear, like if I, if I, because no one actually argues that it isn't. God's concerns about justice isn't in the Bible. That would be an impossible thing to do. Instead, the fear is the, distract, the distraction fear. And what I want to say is like, the, the, the witness of the African-American Christian tradition is do not be afraid. It is possible to say, I care about these things because I'm a Christian. And because I'm a Christian, I want to be involved in these issues. And one of the things that I, listen, and I say this to someone who teaches undergrad, the, the, the fear argument does not work with young people. Mm. They, they just, they're just, they're going to do one of two things. They're e you're either going to give them a Christian and theological framework within, within, within which to understand these issues, or they're going to adopt a secular framework. They're like the percentage of them who are just going to decide, I'm not going to care. It's a really small amount. And so what I want to say is that God, I don't want to say the black church's job is to teach like white Christians how to do these things. Black Christians did this as, as a matter of survival. But what I can say is that you can look at that testimony and say this is the way through the present moment. Yeah, that's beautiful. It, and it actually makes me think we at Subsplash have actually seen a resurgence, maybe a, a renaissance, you might, you might think, of younger people, let's say millennials and Gen Z, actually flocking towards the Anglican Church in North America. Yeah. And is this a part of that? Well, one of the things, and this is the Anglicans are always have, we happen to make this decision like everybody else in America is having to make this decision. Historically, the Anglican church, we weren't around when the culture war should like first fought in the 80s and the 90s. And a lot of millennials who are the children of those culture wars, even when they adopt some of the kind of same theological and ethical stances, the acerbic nature and the kind of the fear-based 
um, ideology is just no longer persuasive. And so the Anglican tradition, because of its kind of global reach and because of the fact that it goes kind of deeper into history, there's resources there for kind of a recovery of kind of the historic Christian kind of attitudes towards charity and justice and service that I think is appealing to people. And so because we're not caught up, because we just weren't, we didn't, we didn't fight the culture wars in the same way, that I think there's people who are drawn to this tradition. As long as we keep those things together. I mean, one of the, one, one example that I use is like, well, in the Church of England, like we have bishops in the parliament. So it's not like we were ever separated from the church. And it's not just England. If you read, and I was reading some stuff in like Nigerian bishops in the news, a Nigerian or a Kenyan bishop will say in a minute, well, we need to do something about, you know, election corruption. We need to do something about environmental devastation. We need to do something about like tribal warfare. And so in a global Anglican context, the, the bishops aren't just spiritual guides. They're also engaged in issue, the political issues, issues of the day. And so that tradition of, of kind of thinking through practically what it means to live and breathe and function as a Christian is a part of Anglicanism. At Subsplash, Dr. McCauley, we have the privilege of serving churches in so many different contexts, cultural contexts, ethnic contexts worldwide. How can your book serve churches in any context? I mean, in the book itself, yes. you actually invite other cultures into this dialogue. Yeah, so I, th I think, so this is what I, 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 give me a second. I know this podcast is limited time, but let me explain, because people get in their feelings when I say reading while black. Any pastor who's ever had to preach to different congregations understands how the moment you start thinking about a certain group, that helps you see things in the text you might miss. So, for example, if you're leading a retreat of newly married couples and you're opening the Bible and you're saying, what does the Bible have to say to young married couples? Or if you go into an elderly home and people are at the end of their life, you're saying, what does this passage have to say? about the elderly or how does it speak to their particular life experiences so once you begin or if you move from the city to a rural area you say well, okay and how does this text apply here so what you're doing then is that you're populating in your mind you bring in certain people with you to the text the text doesn't change but you might say oh i never noticed how this text applies to this community because i never thought about them before so the very perp the very act of putting yourself into a group community's trying to think like that community helps open up facets of the text that you might have missed. And so reading out, but here's the thing. Even if I've been married 20 years, I can listen to someone, a sermon that's being given to a newlywed and say, yeah, here's some stuff about my marriage that I can take. Well, if I'm hearing about a sermon about the end of life, even though I'm 40, here's the things that I can actually take from that because we're still ultimately reading God's word together. And so when I say we're reading while black, I'm saying, I'm asking the question, how do these texts ref like directly apply to a particular community that are having particular issues? That doesn't mean that no one else can gain anything from the from what I want what I have to say because it's still God. She's like, you know what? I never thought about that, but I think this is actually a viable reading of the text. The other thing that it does is that it gives you a window into the kinds of concerns that that community may be facing. Once again, if you hear someone preaching about newlyweds, like, oh yeah. I remember what it was like when I was married for the first two or three years and I didn't have A, B, and C. I need to reach out to, you know, this couple and, and mentor them or something. And so just listening in on this conversation can be informed to say, oh, 
I never knew this was an issue. And now I have some understanding of it. So one, because we're all reading God's word together, the, the book is a lot of Bible. So, so if you, it's a lot of biblical interpretation. And so if you just like biblical interpretation, then fine. And you'll get something from there. But you also get something from listening in to the kinds of questions that people have asked. One of the, one of, a perfect example is the chapter on rage. If you've never really thought about like, how, how would an African-American who has had to experience, who, who kind of understands what happened with Christianity in America, how would they deal with that anger and that frustration in a constructive Christian way? Just the asking of that question opens up um, kind of, at least for the people who are willing, like the space for empathy. And so although the community, the, the, the book is directed towards a certain community, it's not closed off. The last thing I like to say about that is in the book, I don't, I don't, I make it very clear that African American interpretation is simply one form, it's one community. And it's not even one community because it's multifaceted. But that doesn't mean that Ugandan interpretation or or Korean interpretation or Chinese interpretation are somehow less than, or that you have to be able to be black to engage the text. It's saying that here's what I here are how my experiences shape the things that I, that I see. And here, here's the proposal for you to say, have I said these things correctly? And so that is what I think I'm doing. I don't think that I'm like separating black Christianity off from the rest of the world. I'm saying that here's what a decidedly African-American um, perspective on the issues might give to the church. Yes, and, and I'm proof positive. Y you can read this not being black and still gain <laughs> a lot from it. Yes. So, well, I, I really want to thank you for, for being generous with your time today, Dr. McCauley. And I, I also want to give you a chance to let listeners and viewers know where they can follow you and find you. Oh, man. I always think that like the, the social media language of following is so pragmatic, so problematic. But um, <laughs> I'm, I have a, a unique name, so there's not very many Esau McCauley. So if you go at, at Esau McCauley, on um, Twitter, you can find me there, Esau McCauley at Instagram. There's a, like an official Facebook page that you can follow, or you can just like that. You can find me there. Um, if you follow me on social media, I link to whenever I write stuff. But if you just want to find some of my previous articles, you can just type in Esau McCauley slash New York Times, and that'll kind of bring it up to it's updated. So I would say those are places that you should go and look for me. And obviously, if you want the book, it's wherever you buy books. So that's fine. Great. Well, thank you again. And viewers, listeners of Equip and Engage, thank you for your time today tuning into this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Equip and Engage, where we're sharing insights learned from thousands of conversations with leaders and pastors around the world. To follow along with these conversations, subscribe today or visit our website.